Hey, I'm John Harwood, your host for CNBC's Speakeasy podcast. In this episode, we traveled to El Paso for a conversation with Democratic presidential candidate Beto O'Rourke. In his near-miss Senate challenge against Republican Ted Cruz, O'Rourke became a national Democratic sensation in 2018. But this year, he lags far behind rivals for the Democratic nomination. Over Tex-Mex at the L&J Cafe, the former punk musician, small business owner, and congressman began filling in some blanks about his views on the economy. Congressman, cheers. Here's to you. Salud. A couple weeks ago, I was with you, and a woman uh, introduced you there, and she meant it to be a compliment. She said, Beto O'Rourke is a blank slate that we can project our hopes and dreams uh, onto. Is that uh, lack of definition a problem for your campaign? I I hope what she meant by that was Beto O'Rourke has shown up to our community to listen to us. And he came not just to tell us everything that he's going to do for this country, but to bring every single one of us into the solutions, and not just to his solutions, to to our solutions. So, you know, in some of these smaller, more rural communities in Iowa, I'm listening to farmers who understand rural policy and agricultural policy better than I ever could, coming from El Paso. But do you think that you have defined in a clear way for people why you're running and what your core idea is? Yeah. you just met my daughter, Molly. I was telling you about my kids, um, Ulysses and, and Henry, her brothers. They're counting on me, and they're counting on us at this moment. Um, I told you that earlier today we were in a shelter in Ciudad Juarez where this country, through the current administration, has turned back asylum seekers who are at their most desperate and vulnerable moment, um, who are penniless and frightened, who are prey to those who um, you know, we'll, we'll try to take advantage of them in Juarez because we, the wealthiest, the most powerful country, one comprised of immigrants, asylum seekers, and refugees, cannot find the political will to do the right thing. Those kids in the detention centers or the border patrol station that we visited today, all of that is on my conscience and it's the judgment of my kids that I fear. I want to make sure that we sit up to do the right thing. Not one party, not half the country. Mm-hmm. Um, all of us are brought into the solutions. That's the only way you beat Trump. I know that's the only way you beat these other challenges that we face. Let me ask you about definition with respect to the economy. It's on your website, clicked on the issue tab. There wasn't a listing for the economy. Um, and I wonder uh, why that is. You're a small business guy. Absolutely. Um, I think about the fact that we've organized ourselves in, in a capitalist economy. And so capital is central to a person's success. And yet so many prospective entrepreneurs have been locked out of any access to capital. It might be where they were raised, who, who their folks are, the chances they've had in their life might also be the color of their skin and the fact that they've been redlined out of, of access to that. And so you deal with that on the small business thing, but why, why, right. why isn't there an economic tab there, like with I, your I mean, economic... Uh, yeah, I, we'll get it fixed on, on the website. I mean, it, it's, it's, um, it's obviously fundamental to our success as a country, more people having the chance to become small business owners and create jobs and offer their services and their food to the folks in this community and this country, but also making sure that we acknowledge that there are people who are on the outside looking into the world's greatest 
economy with no meaningful way to participate, who might be paid $7.25 an hour, the minimum wage in right. Texas, and so therefore are working a second or even a third job to make ends meet for themselves or for their kids. You have states like mine in Texas where you have a so-called right to work that denies people the right to organize and to use their leverage and the value that they bring to the workplace to exact better working conditions, better wages, better services that they want to deliver for those whom, whom they serve. I want to make sure that we change all of that and we change that for the better and bring every single person into this economy. Then it really works. It seems the big divide in the campaign is between people like, say, Elizabeth Warren, who say we need deep, fundamental, structural change in how corporations are run, in our tax system, um, uh, in our regulatory system, and those who say that uh, uh, we can move more slowly and more incrementally, and it feels to me as if you're trying to straddle those two things and not define yourself in one or the other. I feel like I'm just trying to do the right thing. I'm, I'm listening to people who are, are trying to make ends meet. Um, hearing from teachers uh, in a kindergarten classroom that some kids at the age of five are already 10 months behind in reading comprehension. I bet you that those are the kids of parents who are working two or three jobs to make ends meet and don't have the luxury, as Amy and I have had, to read to our kids before the first day of kindergarten or first grade. Mm -hmm. So all this stuff is, is connected. So when we call for um, expanding public education so that we have pre-K universally for every child in every part of the country, it's addressing that. But when we're talking about a $15 an hour minimum wage, it is also addressing that. When we talk about guaranteed high quality universal health care, it is addressing that. That child's ability to be well enough to learn during that next day of school and, and all these are things that I've heard from people all over this country. So I don't know where you want to fix me on the political spectrum or relative to the other candidates. I just don't define myself in opposition to them, but, but instead in terms of what I want to achieve. At the debate the other night, you got a question about the 70% tax rate. And you didn't say that was too high. You didn't say it was about right or too low. Yeah. Why not? Yeah. I should have. Uh, it's it's too high. Um, I, I think in my 60 seconds of trying to get an answer in and trying to root my answer in the fundamental inequality of this economy and the inability of far too many of our fellow Americans to be included in this economy, um, which is you know central to anything else that we're going to address, including the tax rate. Um, I didn't answer the direct question. So if you're asking me, no, I don't think we should have a 70% tax rate. I, I think that is too high. What sounds right I, to you? I, I think you, at a minimum, roll back the worst elements of the Trump tax cut. So the marginal, the top marginal tax rate back up to 39%. If, if you were to do that uh, and, in addition, um, make some other structural changes to our tax code, uh, the corporate tax rate, which was brought down from 35 to 21, bring that back up to 28. Great place to start. And as you probably know, you generate hundreds of billions of dollars over the next 10 years. If you were to tax capital at the same rate that you tax ordinary wage income, like the waiters who are, who are working here, um, then you know, I think you, you also get to some greater structural correction to a very unequal economy, and you generate the revenue necessary. You mean capital gains and dividends? Absolutely. And, and I want to make sure that I get this point across that 
yes, you generate the revenue that you need to pay for the investments in education, in, in healthcare, um, in the affordability of, of college, but you also reduce the concentration of wealth and power and privilege that really defines this age in America in a way that we haven't seen since the last Gilded Age of more than a hundred years ago. And so both are necessary to ensure that this democracy, this country will work for everybody. If you increase a wealth tax, perhaps at the intergenerational transfer of, of wealth within families, more so than you, than mean you like do the, today. The uh, estate tax and the step-up basis that... A absolutely. Um, you, you tax at, at the, the real value of, of that given asset, not just... Uh, you okay, know. so you'd get rid of the step-up basis. A absolutely. Um, and, and then I think if you also look at, at where we're spending money today and how we've accrued the debt and the current deficit that we're running, um, it, it's inescapable that the wars that we have waged mm -hmm. and the fact that we've been in Iraq, for example, for the last 28 years, in Afghanistan for 18 years, and in so many other countries around the planet, ending those wars, bringing those service members back home, finding peaceful, nonviolent diplomatic resolution to our foreign policy priorities mm -hmm. also produces an extraordinary savings which could be directed towards investments that we want to make in this country. Infrastructure, education, healthcare, the, the things that will make this country stronger and allow more people to participate in the economy. Now you proposed a tax the other day to fund veterans initiatives that you wanted, a war tax, which was to tax families that do not have uh, family members uh, in service. And when I talked to economists about that, they thought that's awfully complicated. What constitutes service? How far does family reach? Is that a fully baked idea? Yeah. Um, right now, we've asked fewer than 1% of our fellow Americans to serve in the wars since 9-11. And the financial cost, the economic cost of that, we've placed on this country's credit card to be borne by this and, and future generations. Mm -hmm. What I'm proposing is that the next time we decide to go to war, we fully pay for all the costs of that war as we're, we're waging that war, including making sure that we made investments in the care for veterans who will have borne the battle. You probably know this, but those Americans who served in Vietnam waited 40 years for this country to treat um, exposure to Agent Orange as a presumptive condition for the cancers that they were dying from, meaning for four decades the VA provided no meaningful help to hundreds of thousands of our fellow Americans. It's been 28 years since Gulf War veterans were exposed to toxins that led to a Gulf War illness. Uh, I want to make sure that we're investing right up front when we go to those wars and the money is deposited in a veterans trust fund that but can have, only be have used you for those and the veterans. economic uh, advisors you're relying on thought through how you define what families are exempt and what yeah. are not? Here, here's a simple way that, and is, that it, I, is it just does it does your your dad count or is it your kid or how, yeah. how do you if if you are a veteran um, if you're an active duty service member, you're not going to pay into this Veterans Trust Fund because you've, you've already paid with your Whenever wife. you were a veteran. Yeah. If you're a, an, an immediate family member in that household, because we know that when someone from a household uh, serves this country and goes to war, everybody in that household serves this country and goes to war. So your spouse um, is, is not subject to this tax. Uh, um, so it, it ensures that those who have already paid the price are recognized for their service. 
um, those who are currently paying it by being deployed have investment made to ensure that we're there to meet them when they come back. We're going to spare no expense, bear any burden. Um, but that the other Americans who have been able to um, not have to bear the cost of these wars um, have to contribute something as well. And, and here, beyond generating the revenues we need to pay for the services that those veterans have earned, here's what else it does. I hope it causes us to pause before we go into the next war because we look at the full accounting and cost for, for what it really takes to, to, to pay for not just the bombs, the bullets, and the deployments, but those veterans who return over the course of their lives, the PTSD, TBI, military sexual trauma uh, that they incur in service to this country, making sure that we're there for them when they come back. As a member of Generation X, do you subscribe to the argument that baby boomers and a as a generation have made selfish policy choices that cut their own taxes, that ran up debt, that emphasized consumption rather than resolving a lot of problems. Uh, do you think that's a fair critique of the baby boom generation? No, I, I mean, if, if we get to pointing fingers at, at different generations or blaming our fellow Americans based on a difference in age or geography or, or really any, anything else. But when you think about the tremendous liability the government has when this very large baby boom generation retires um, and the fact that there are fewer workers to pay the taxes to support those benefits as they retire, people like me, um, do you see an issue of generational justice in that or injustice? Yeah, I, I, see, I see an opportunity for us to, to figure out the answers to some pretty significant challenges posed by this generation retiring. Uh, you know, within 15 years, it's very possible on this current trajectory that Social Security no longer pays 100% of its obligation mm -hmm. to our fellow Americans who worked every single day of their lives and paid into the Social Security Trust Fund. So they raise the cap on. So yeah, so you can blame the previous generation or you can do the sensible thing and raise the cap and make sure that those who are earning eliminate it the altogether. most. Yeah, eliminate it altogether and make sure that that fund is solvent well in, not just to the next generation, but into the next century. And then look, um, we spend a lot of time um, listening to those who are concerned about or energized over immigration. Immigrants are coming to this country, um, traveling thousands of miles for the honor of picking and preparing our food so that we can feed ourselves, doing jobs that your kids and my kids are more likely than not not going to do in this country. And they're an extraordinary opportunity for us to meet our, our responsibility to successive generations in terms of paying in to this social safety net so to Trump, make sure that it works. Trump has proposed cutting levels of legal immigration in half. Right. You've proposed raising visa caps. How much higher do you think uh, legal immigration should go? We have millions of unfilled jobs in, in this country uh, for which we cannot find labor that was born in this country to, to work. Now in some instances that's a mismatch of skills and training and education so I also call for ensuring that we invest in community colleges, invest in the ability for unions and apprenticeships to, to meet that gap but many of those jobs will only be filled by those who are willing to come to this country and to work those jobs. So a million lifting, people a year come in legally now. Should we double that? 
I think we should significantly increase it. Uh, I think that should be a conversation with small business owners like those here at the LNJ Cafe, um, farmers, ranchers, producers uh, all over this country, immigrant families and communities, small town America whose very vitality depends on the willingness of immigrants to come to this country. Let me ask you about your experience as a small businessman, um, both the uh, web services company, the Alt Weekly. Yeah. Um, do you look upon that as a success, and what do you take from it as you think about the economic challenges of the country? Yeah. So, I do look at it as a success to, to be able, with good friends, far more talented, smarter th than I was, to come together and create opportunity and jobs in the third poorest urban county in the United States, high value, high skill, high tech jobs in El Paso, Texas. That felt really good. Um, it was really hard to do, but I'll tell you, um, I, I had some advantages that other Americans don't. And I'll give you an example. I could not get a loan in 1998 to start a technology company in El Paso. I just didn't have the assets uh, that, that the bank would, would lend against. But my dad, who had a home that was fully paid for, could take out a loan on his home and then lend that money back to me, 20,000 bucks. That was the seed capital that allowed us to start a business that ultimately hired dozens of our fellow El Pasoans and served clients all over this country. I know that there Which are reflects the wealth disparities that make it so difficult for some to... Absolutely. The, the fact that there's 10 times the wealth in white America than there is in black America, that many black Americans literally were drawn out of the ability to get a home loan uh, and, and buy a home and build equity against which they could borrow to ensure that that next generation, their son or daughter, could start a small business. The more I listen to people and travel the country, the more exceptional my experience seems to have been and the more it helps to explain the lack of dynamism that we, we see amongst small businesses right now. As you consolidate more power in corporations, more market share amongst fewer companies, uh, when you have fewer opportunities to be able to borrow or to lend out at a community level, um, you're, you're really um, stifling opportunity for so many. So I would love more of my fellow Americans to have the same opportunity I had to be an entrepreneur, to create jobs Were, were you and good at it? Did the, I know the, the weekly went out of business, but did, was the uh, web services company profitable? Yeah. It, it's still in business today, you know, and I don't know how many businesses um, make it past the 20-year mark, but, you know, Stanton Street is, is still going. And in fact, we... You didn't get rich off of it. I didn't get rich off of it, no. And that was never my goal, and it wasn't what drove me. And in fact, um, the most exciting part of the business was the news part of the business. We, we started a online newspaper covering City Hall, arts and culture, and the U.S.-Mexico relationship. I moved back here in 98, and I found this to be the most fascinating, the most exciting place on the planet, and I wanted to tell our story. Um, I made the, the brilliant decision, um, in quotes, to, to move from an online-only version yeah, very good. in the late 90s to print, just as the economy and the industry was going in the exact opposite direction. But um, really proud of the writing and the reporting and our coverage of City Hall, and, and politics and policy in El Paso. And I really think we help to deepen and improve the conversation and lead to some better policy outcomes in the communities. One of the issues that's gotten bigger and bigger in our politics are, are the uh, pros and cons of gentrification. You dealt with that in El Paso on a development project that had some resistance and you got some, uh, still have gotten some blowback for that. 
What did you learn um, that you can apply going forward about how government ought to balance the interests of what may look to most people as economic progress, right. but has concentrated costs on a small number of people? Yeah. So I was on the city council at a time that our, our downtown had, for all intents and purposes, died. The, the core of our community, the center of our city, uh, was not alive. And it was hard to uh, retain and attract talent to create economic growth and development and make this a city that young people wanted to be in. And so there was a really ambitious plan to correct that. But what I learned when we introduced that plan um, and then I knocked on the doors of those people who lived within the area of the plan was it did not meet all of their needs, including protecting them against being priced out of their apartments and their homes. So based on their feedback, uh, I helped to change the plan to ensure that affordability was a fundamental component of the downtown plan and that affordability for housing was defined as a function of income, that no more than 30% of what you earn would be paid in rent or mortgage or living expenses. But even if you make concessions like that, you can't make everybody happy. Is that okay that, that you've got you've to at some point say, no, the entire city needs this, we're going to go forward? I think you have to do everything within your power to ensure that those who will be most affected by a given policy decision are protected and, and benefit from that decision, especially those in communities that very often are overlooked or neglected or are forgotten altogether. And so is what gets way, referred to as gentrification bad? Yeah, it is. When, when folks who for generations have um, defined the character um, and the success of, of a neighborhood or a community are pushed out because they can no longer afford to be in that community, that's a bad thing. And, and it's a bad thing that's happening in communities all over the United States right now. Trade expansion is broadly good for the economy. Uh, it has uh, diffuse benefits for most people, but concentrated costs for some people in industries adversely affected. Um, it seems to me that you've been kind of on both sides of the trade debate. You were for Trade Promotion Authority, but now you say you would have been against Trans-Pacific Partnership. So this community got hit harder than almost any other community in the United States after the passage of the North American Free Trade Agreement. I think there were officially 29,000 trade-adjusted job losses that literally picked up stakes and moved right across the river to Ciudad Juarez. However, in the intervening years and decades, we have become a trade hub. And so now one out of every four jobs in El Paso is connected to U.S.-Mexico trade. It literally drives the economy of the community that are represented in Texas. So I'm going to fiercely protect those jobs that we have in place. But I'm also going to remember the lessons learned from NAFTA. And so I wanted to make sure that President Obama had the authority necessary to negotiate the best possible deal. All of the goals and all of the motives were, were noble, but as I was trying to say, here in Mexico, uh, an economy with which we are joined literally at the hip, um, to deny the ability to organize, which would improve labor conditions, working standards, and incomes in Juarez, and consequently would put the American worker on a more level playing field 
was a, a serious sin of omission in that plan. You're asking me what I would do in my administration. I'd make sure that we were able to conduct trade negotiations with all of these Pacific partners, but that we prioritize those labor standards, environmental standards, and human rights standards so that free trade becomes fair trade. In opposing TPP, you're aligned with Donald Trump on that. Um, is anything good for the U.S. economy going to come from his confrontation with China? No. Listening to people who've been affected by his trade policy and this war that he's entered the United States in with China over trade, that cost is being borne by the American consumer. It's just an additional tax that all of us are paying on the goods that we purchase. Um, but the real devastation is felt in states like Iowa where farmers who for their entire lives or for generations work to open up markets in China for the soybeans and for the corn that they grow have seen those markets closed to them and know that even if they reopen, those buyers in those places will find other sellers in other countries. We may never be able to get back in to those places. And Does so, it frustrate you as a Democrat that many of those farmers are still going to vote for President Trump, even though no, he may have uh, had the effect that you mentioned? It doesn't frustrate me, and I don't blame anybody. I, I just know that the onus is on me as a candidate to show up, to listen to them, and then to make sure that we all make the connection between what those farmers are experiencing, you know, historic low farm incomes, underwater in debt, their fields, now lakes, and what this president is doing, taking us into a war without allies, turning his back on Canada the and allies Mexico. TPP was the allies. The allies are also the European Union. The allies are our are allies and trading partners in Asia. If we met China in a united front, um, the concessions that we want to get to ensure that they don't dump below cost on the United States market, that they don't manipulate their currency, they don't violate the rules of the road that we've all agreed to, we would be successful in every single one of them. Right now, we are in a, a war with no exit ramp, um, with uh, no ability to bring in allies and partners to include additional leverage to get China to do what we want them to do. And that's our negotiating tactic around the world. It's with Kim Jong-un, it's with uh, the leaders in, in Iran, it's with every single threat um, or situation we face. We, we have bucked our allies and friends um, in any capacity to meet these challenges successfully. He has diminished our standing in the world and, and weakened our security and our ability to be successful when it comes to trade. You mentioned that you had the backstop of a family with privileges and with money uh, to help you in uh, business. There's a line of uh, critique that you've had kind of a cushy life. Politico had a story said he's been failing upward. You know, I'll, I'll leave that um, to the voters to decide in an extraordinary field of amazing people. But I'll just tell you, uh, over the course of, of my life, uh, I've done everything within my power to, to bring people in and to use the opportunity that I have to make sure that whether as a small business owner, uh, more people have an opportunity at economic success, as a city council member, that more people can participate in the policy making at the municipal level, holding town hall meetings every week, as a member of Congress, making sure that every voice is heard and that we get the job done, even in the minority with the Republican majority, every day of the six years that I served. And in Texas, going across every one of those 254 counties and writing nobody off 
and counting nobody out and taking nobody for granted and instead bringing everybody in. Um, it's, Is there it's, any experience that you've had that makes you think, I've been through the fire uh, and that's what made me who I am? I mean, for, for each of us, our, our entire life is uh, what's made us who we are. Um, you know, um, so I'm, I'm trying to give you some, some of those things that I've worked on, that, that I've done, in addition to, to being, uh, you know, uh, a father of, of three kids who, who mean the world to me and for whom I'm, I'm running this race um, right now. Um, and just my record of, of delivering for people who, who are counting on this government to, to work for them. And you can ask any veteran in El Paso about a community that ranked dead last in wait times for a mental health care provider. We brought people in in this community to make sure that we addressed those challenges and got care to people who needed it. So that experience was transformative for me. Um, listening to those who had suffered in service to this country and who were depending on us to act at their moments of need and our moment of truth and uh, we came through for them and, and that's what I want to do for the people of this country. Well that's it for this episode of Speakeasy. Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode of Speakeasy was produced by MC Wellens, editing by Sherry Rosen. Oh and by the way, please rate our podcast. It helps listeners find us and leave your feedback in the comments section. We want to hear from you. Talk soon.